Jesus. You will find Second Peter chapter three on page one two two three of your uh, church Bible. Page one two two three. I'm starting at the first verse and reading the whole chapter. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Saviour through your apostles. Above all, you must understand that at the last days scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also, the the world at that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth were reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of those matters his letters contained, sorry, <coughs> speaking of them in these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the Holy Scriptures to their own destruction. Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. To him be glory, both now and forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's take our seats.
So good morning to you all. It's that wonderful crinkin' phenomena. I sat down there about five minutes before the commencement of the service, and there was a three-quarters empty hall. And you stand up and you turn around, and suddenly, miraculously, the hall has filled up, which is great. So you're very welcome this morning, uh, when we do have a very large number of people uh, away as well. Most of you would know my mother passed away last month. Um, And at her funeral, one of the passages that was read was 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. Passage many of you will be very familiar with. uh, The challenge is to have uh, that, uh, to not grieve as those uh, without hope would grieve. My cousin who actually read that passage Uh, at the funeral he stood up and his preamble before he read the passage was he said this is one of the most outrageous passages in scripture of course what he meant was that the, the scope and the implications of what Paul was writing were just enormous I know today's passage for me is right up there as I was preparing uh, that phrase kind of outrageous came into my head again. Uh, Peter reminds his readers here about what is referred to in verse 10 as the day of the Lord. Sometimes referred to as the parousia, the second coming of Christ. And the accompanying destruction of this cosmos because it talks about the destruction of the heavens and the earth and the advent of a new heaven and earth in verses 12 and 13. Here's how one commentator describes this. Let me read this to you. This terrifying picture, and Peter does mean it to be terrifying, may be difficult for our modern minds to grasp. This once and for all end to our space-time home is beyond our imagination. This blistering destruction is so unimaginably vast that we begin to see how futile it is to think that we can bring about Christ's kingdom by mere revolution or social change, however desirable change may be. Nor could anything as relatively small as a global nuclear holocaust or climate change account for the universal meltdown. Now I wonder how you and I in our modern scientific world respond to a passage like 2 Peter chapter 3 which Sylvia has just read for us. As I was going over some material for, uh, for this uh, I saw that the parousia, the return of Jesus described in one article on the internet as a primitive Christian expectation. Now I wonder how, if you shared this truth, and maybe you have recently, if you shared this truth with friends, neighbours, or workmates, I wonder how they would react to you. Might they think you are a little bit primitive? May they think you are a little bit superstitious? or perhaps even just a little bit wacky. So do we embrace 
what Peter teaches us here? Or is it an inconvenient truth? Is it something we're a little bit more comfortable you know, pushing to the back of our minds, finding some cupboard in the back of our minds that we can kind of shut it away and not have to think about it uh, too much? Because here is the kicker. Peter doesn't want us just to believe this truth. He wants us to live it. Look at verse 11 with me. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? So the focus of this chapter for Peter is how this truth translates into our daily living. What happens when you and I walk out the door this morning and what do we do tomorrow and Tuesday and for the rest of this week? Peter believes that this outrageous truth should be an active ingredient shaping our daily living. There's a key connection all the way through this chapter and indeed through the book of 2 Peter between belief and behaviour. Peter writes to correct the teaching of some false teachers who would try and shape the truth of the gospel in a way that justifies their behavior. So Peter affirms this truth of the second coming of Jesus. Um, Look again at verse 10 and verse 11. And note how many times the word will appears. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way. So Peter lays out the truth and then he poses the question. What kind of people ought you to be? Now I realized as I was putting this together that the events of the second coming, there's a whole, I was going to say a whole other sermon in that. There's probably a whole series of sermons. Um, And what I want to do is almost take that as read this morning. So let's take the verses 10 and 11 where Peter lays out and says, this will happen, this will happen. Let's just take that as read this morning. And where I want to place the focus is on this question, therefore, what kind of people ought you to be? As you and I walk out the door this morning and into the week ahead, what does this truth mean for you and I? And there are five insights that I want to share with you from this chapter. Some short, some less short. First one's a very short one. We are to be future-minded. So note, look in verse 12 to 14 again, look how many times the phrase look forward is mentioned. So verse 12, as you look forward to the day of God and its coming. Verse 13, but in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth. Verse 14, so then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this. 
I just read uh, a quote from a commentator that described the future as blistering destruction. And yet we are challenged here as Christians to look forward. But of course, we are to look forward because as we are promised in verse 13, we are also as believers looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth. We sang that song earlier. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, and nor has it entered into the mind of man what God has conceived for those who love him. So we are challenged by Paul to be future-minded, to look forward. I wonder what that phrase, looking forward, means to you this morning. How do you look forward to an event? I'm looking forward to going on holiday at the end of uh, this week. You might be looking forward to a birthday, or a wedding, or some other event of that type. What does it mean for you to look forward to something? Well, it's certainly occupying your consciousness. You are thinking about it. You're excited about it. You are full of anticipation, and you are making preparation. So here's my challenge to you this morning and my challenge to myself. To what extent does the truth of the return of Jesus occupy our consciousness? And maybe one way to try this out is, each day this week, before you start the day, think about looking forward. Think about being future-minded and think about living your life this week in the reality that one day Jesus will return and that you and I will live with him eternally in a new heaven and a new earth. So the first insight is we are to be future-minded. Second insight is we are to be active in sharing the gospel. As I mentioned already, Peter writes this chapter to correct false teachers. Um, And one of their lines of attack is in verse 4. These false teachers referring to the second coming of Jesus, they say, where is this coming he promised? They mock and they scoff sarcastically at the idea that Jesus will return. And Peter responds to this in two ways. Uh, Firstly, he reminds us that God's perspective on time is not our perspective on time. Verse 8, he refers to, and this is actually drawn from Psalm uh, 90. And Peter says, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. Uh, I was reading, uh, or reading, I was listening to a podcast by Tim Keller uh, on this passage, and he, he drew the contrast behind, between how a child thinks about time and how an adult thinks about time. If you've got a three-year-old in front of you, I don't have them anymore, but I'm not sure my 16-year-old doesn't do this anyway. If you have a three-year-old in front of you and you say, it's coming soon, it'll be here in a month's time. Well, for you as the adult, a month feels like a short space of time. For the three-year-old, not so much. Time is a relative concept. We all think about time and respond to it in different ways. And Peter says, God's perspective on time and our perspective on time are two different things. And the second way that he counters this attack from these false teachers 
is to say that this delay, which is not really a delay because God's perspective on time is different from our perspective, but this window, this time window, is not a reflection of God's impotence, but rather a reflection of his character, of patience, mercy, and grace. Peter says here, God is not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. One of my favorite verses in scripture is Nehemiah chapter 9 and verse 17. When it uses that phrase to describe God's character, but you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. So what we've been given in this moment is a window of opportunity to share the gospel. But who are God's gospel agents in this community? Of course it's you and it's me. So how are you, how am I, how are we as a church using this time? Let me ask you a challenging question. When did you last share the gospel with someone? When did you last share your faith with someone? We're going to spend quite a time as a a church in September when Tom arrives uh, looking at what we're going to do as a church in terms of outreach. Well, do you and I share Peter's sense of urgency? How are you using your resources, your time, your energy, your money, to advance the gospel? Because this window of opportunity will close. So that second thing is, how are we active in sharing the gospel? Third insight, uh, and it's in verse 11. Since everything will Uh, be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. It's interesting, this is the same phrase that Peter uses in 1 Peter to describe Jesus when he describes him as being without blemish or defect. And if you flick back with me to 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 13, just back one page, talking about these false teachers. In verse 13, uh, Peter writes this. He says, um, uh, They will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes. See the contrast here? We are to be spotless and blameless while these false teachers are described as blots and blemishes. And what is it that they are doing in verse 3 of chapter 3? Well, they're trying to shape the gospel to follow their own evil desires. I'm always conscious when we read scripture like this and it says uh, we're called to live a holy life. Um, And I can leave you with a thought walking out the door. So I want you to go out this week now and I want you to live a holy life. And it would be fair enough, I think, and a fair enough challenge for you to say, and what do you mean by that? Well, the good news is, and I'm only going to give a couple of very brief examples of this, but the good news is that we are not without 
and we are not short of granular instruction in scripture as to what holy living looks like. If you flick back again a page, just one page, to Peter chapter 1 and verses 5 to 8. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you want to flick with me to Colossians chapter 3, briefly page 1184 in your pew Bibles, we look at a passage like Colossians chapter 3, verses that many of you in the room are very familiar with. We look at verse 5 of Colossians chapter 3. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. And move down to verse uh, 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, patience, etc., The point I'm simply making here is we are not short in scripture of instruction as to what it means to live a holy life. But I want you to note again something in verse 14 here in chapter 3 of 2 Peter. So then dear friends, since you're looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, etc., That's a really searching question for each of us this morning. In another part, in another verse here, it says that Jesus will will return like a thief in the night. Listening to Tim Keller's podcast again, he illustrated it this way. He said it's a bit like a pop quiz versus an end of term exam. So much of us think of it as an end of term exam, and well. When the exam's coming up, I'll get ready for it. With the pop quiz, you need to be always ready. Jesus will return like a thief in the night. At the very moment when we least expect it. And the question that Peter poses us here is, how will you be found? We're asked to live a life that is holy, Spotless, holy and godly life, spotless, blameless, and at peace with Him. If Jesus was to return today, is that how He would find you? Last couple of points, and briefly. So, fourthly, we are asked, verse seventeen, we are encouraged by Paul, or sorry, by Peter, to be on guard, forewarned is forearmed. We were chatting earlier uh, about, um, uh, in in the uh, last week, Stephen spoke about the letters to the churches in Revelation. If you were here last week, he spoke about the churches in Pergamum um, and Sardis. And he, he talked about the 
infiltration of false teaching. And remember what Peter is doing is he's writing here to correct false teachers. And something really struck me when, uh, when Stephen was speaking to us last week. He talked about the Christians at Pergamum. And he talked about how they withstood the direct threat of violence. So they faced physical persecution all the way to the point of death. And in, in the light of that, they still stood true to the faith. So persecution, violence and death, and they stood firm. And yet the subtlety of Satan. How were they being undermined? They were being undermined by false teaching. And very often false teaching does not scream out at us. Very often false teaching is a subtle, a subtle twist, a subtle undermining, uh, a form of the gospel. And we're all vulnerable to that. And we all need to be very careful. Peter describes here these false teachers as lawless in verse 17. Same word used to describe the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah. So Peter, or Peter challenges us here to be constantly vigilant. To be constantly on guard. And the best way to do that is what, and our final point, is mentioned in verse 18. But grow in the grace of and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. So combining these two points, be on guard. How do you be on guard? By growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. To grow means to increase, doesn't it? To get bigger, to grow stronger, to grow more mature. So what does that mean here? Well, God's grace, I think, is most simply defined, if that's a phrase I can ever use, to simply define grace. But I think one way of defining it quite simply is God's undeserved favor. Grace can't be earned. It's something that is freely given. God's gift of salvation is the greatest example of his undeserved favor. But what Peter says here is grow in grace. In other words, grace is a dynamic, not a static concept. God wants that fire that was lit in us to fan into full flame. He wants us to experience more of his love, more of his forgiveness, more of his power. And in so doing to increase in spiritual strength and maturity. To become more Christ-like in all that we do. To grow in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ has two parts. It has an intellectual part. Reading scripture, studying scripture, meditating on scripture. Learning more about the Lord Jesus in that way. But it also has... A, rel- a relational part knowing him as we build a deeper relationship with him and as we experience his presence in our lives each day how do we do that well no mystery through prayer 
through meditation on the Bible, through fellowship with one another, when we encourage one another with what God's doing in our lives, through that quiet time that we separate off with the Lord. And grace and knowledge are almost like, I'm not sure if it's the right analogy, two sides of the same coin. They fuel each other. They play off each other. We increase in grace, we increase in knowledge. We increase in knowledge, we increase in grace. But here's another really challenging question as we come to a conclusion. Paul says, be on guard. Or Peter, sorry, says, be on guard. And Peter says the best way to be on guard is to be growing in grace and knowledge. So my question is, how have you, how have I grown in grace and knowledge in the last 12 months? Would you describe your relationship with Jesus as something that is stuck, static, perhaps even going backwards? Or would you describe it as something that is growing and flourishing? How have you grown? How have I grown in grace and knowledge of Jesus in the last 12 months? And what is the evidence of that? It would have been useful maybe to throw up a slide with these five points on it. Maybe we'll put them out in the uh, email that circulates around on a Monday morning. But there's five insights that Peter shares with us uh, in this passage. He writes to correct these false teachers and their challenge to the return of Jesus. He affirms the truth of the return of Jesus. The second coming of Jesus. And then he poses us this fundamental question. In light of that, what kind of people ought you and I to be as Christians? This passage challenges us to allow our daily lives to be shaped and informed by the reality of the second coming of Jesus. We are to keep this truth at the front of our minds and in our consciousness. Not to shut it away in some cupboard in the back where it won't cause us any problems. We're to look forward in anticipation. We are to use this time afforded by God's patience to share the gospel. We are to live holy lives and ask the question constantly, if Jesus was to return today, how would I be found? We are to guard against false teaching. And we do that best by growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. I hope in there somewhere, even if it's only one thing that you've taken away, that there's something practical that will stick with you. That as you walk out the door and walk into the new week ahead, some of this, I use the phrase active ingredient. Peter writes that the truth that the return of Jesus will be an active ingredient in our minds and in our hearts and translate into who we are living and serving Jesus this week. I hope there's at least one thing that sticks with you and you can practically put into play this week. Let's pray. Father God, we simply thank you for this outrageous truth 
that Jesus will return. He will return in glory and this world will come to an end. But we praise you for the promise of a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness will reign and where we will join you as believers in your eternal glory. Father God, that is outrageous. Amazing in its scope. Amazing in the implications of that simple sentence or two. Father God, we pray that we will live our lives this week in that truth. That somehow, Lord, these words, and we ask you, Lord, bring them to the front of our mind each day this week. May they permeate our thinking and get into our soul. And may those who encounter us this week see it reflected in how we behave as well. Lord, we pray that we will truly live as future-minded Christians with our eyes on the return of the Lord Jesus. Amen.